In the Buddhist teaching, there is a great vastness of vision. He talks about different realms of existence, the 31 planes of existence, the lower realms and the human realms and the higher realms. Talks of countless world systems. In each of these world systems, there are 31 planes of existence. Talks of endless, beginningless time, you know, and countless rebirths. It's big. It's very big. (laughs) And although we may have a growing confidence and faith in the teachings of the Buddha, still probably for most of us, the vastness of this vision remains something outside of our direct experience. There's another way of understanding the vastness of the vision in a way which we can touch very directly and have touched for ourselves. That is the understanding of the vastness and depth of this Dharma journey of understanding in which we open to the nature of the mind itself. We open to the possibility, the taste of freedom. We open to seeing all the ways in which the mind creates so much suffering for ourselves, for others, in the world. In seeing the possibility of freedom in the midst of all this, It's not an abstract or theoretical consideration. It's not studying philosophy 101 on freedom. It's really about looking directly into our own minds, into our own lives. How can we understand and practice freedom moment to moment? What is the meaning of enlightenment? What is the meaning of the word freedom? It's described in different ways, from different perspectives, in the various Buddhist traditions. In some of the traditions, the emphasis is on the recognition of the suffering that we face directly in our lives. The emphasis is on the kalesas, the Charon spoke of the other night, the torments, the defilements of the mind and how we can free ourselves from these forces, these long-established habit patterns of greed, of hatred, of ignorance, of fear. And so a lot of the teachings is focused very directly on our current situation. In different traditions, the emphasis is on the recognition the understanding of the enlightened mind itself. What is the nature of the pure and luminous mind? How can we recognize it? All of the different traditions and all of the skillful means which they use and all of the levels of realization themselves converge in one very simple expression. They converge in one very simple teaching. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. The Buddha said that whoever had heard this teaching has heard all of the teachings. And whoever puts this teaching into practice has practiced all of the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So how can we practice this? This essence of it all. We need to become aware, we need to become mindful of all the places that we do cling. We want to practice the mind that doesn't cling to anything as I or mine. We need to see where it is that we are clinging. 
if we remain unaware of the places of clinging in our minds, basically we stay lost in the sleep of ignorance, of delusion, where we don't know what's going on. So we pay attention. And this is what we're practicing here. It's a place to train the mind in a very careful attention, coming back to very simple objects of experience, the breath, sensations, a sound, a movement, a thought, an image. We come back again and again. And in doing this, we begin to notice all of the habit patterns of reaction in the mind. By giving ourselves a very simple reference point to come back to, we can see against that reference point the habits of our likes and our dislikes and our judgments and our preferences. We want this and we want to avoid that. And we can see for ourselves directly, not as a philosophic statement, we can feel it directly in our own experience, the suffering that comes from grasping, from clinging at anything. There's a wide range of suffering in our lives, different kinds of suffering. You know, from one extreme, we could say the extreme of different kinds of mental illness, where we're so caught up, or the mind can get so caught up in thought patterns or powerful emotions or mind states and so completely identified with them or images and so completely, totally identified that there's no space, there's no freedom at all. We can see the suffering in our more ordinary deluded mind states or more ordinary kinds of grasping, times when the mind becomes obsessive in thought loops. Have you had any of those? (laughs) (laughs) You know, where we just go around and around and around, the same tape over and over again. It's amazing the tape doesn't wear out. (laughs) You know, or we get lost repeatedly over and over again in emotions that overwhelm us. Where we in some way or other are holding on, are clinging, are identified, are attached to these emotional patterns. Not understanding how to let go of things like anger or hatred or fear or jealousy or envy. And not only not knowing how to let go of them, but as part of that and quite strangely, we are often in the habit of justifying them to ourselves. Well, I should feel angry, you know, or I should feel like this. You know, and, and in many ways, our culture, you know, supports that understanding. But who's suffering? You know, when we are cu- caught up or overwhelmed by these powerful, afflictive emotions, who suffers? But I should be feeling this. <laughs> you know. It doesn't make any sense. It's like beating ourselves. We cling to or get attached to or get lost to various views and opinions about things. It's another kind of clinging or grasping. That's a tremendous suffering. We confine ourselves in a limited point of view. This became particularly apparent to me after spending very many years immersed in one particular tradition of practice and teaching. You know, and the practice and the study and the metaphysics all were very consistent and they supported uh, a unified understanding of things. And then I started practicing, doing some practice from another tradition where the practice was a little bit different, although similar, but the metaphysics were very different. And when I first got involved in this, there was a real torment in my mind. I was really suffering because of the apparent conflict 
you know, if they're right, how can they be right? And is this just Mara coming to deceive me? And I was really going back and forth with it. And a great resolution happened. And it was it was worth the suffering to come to that place of realizing that I didn't know. You know, and that was such a relief. <laughs> I didn't have to have an opinion or a view about this, that somehow there's this great mystery unfolding. You know, and maybe when we're fully enlightened with no more ignorance left in the mind, maybe then we'll know something. <laughs> but at this point, you know, we're all evolving out of our experience from the guidance of different teachings. Can we just stay open? And, and it felt like a tremendous opening, letting go of that attachment to view. Even when we think we do know something out of experience. Because that attachment really is the cause of so much of the sectarianism that's in the world. You know, and how much of the conflict and suffering there is because of that sectarian viewpoint. So all of these kinds of holding on you know, to thought loops, to afflictive emotions that overwhelm us, to our points of view, to our opinions, they're all the cause of suffering. We can see it in terms of our addiction to certain kinds of actions or speech patterns that are harmful, that we know are not helpful, and yet we keep doing them again and again out of the force of grasping or clinging. There's a special kind of clinging that happens on retreat. It's unique to, to retreat. And we've given it a name. We call it the yogi mind phenomenon. Where somehow when we're on retreat, our world gets so... something. <laughs> I don't know what where particular thoughts or ideas can loom so large in the mind <coughs> and we take them to be so real. There are countless examples of yogi mind, but there are a few classics. <laughs> On one retreat, this happened quite a few years ago. Uh, it was in some place up in the Northwest and there was one yogi who was very disturbed by all the planes flying overhead. So this one yogi wrote to the manager, <coughs> wrote a note saying, would you please write to the airline to have them reroute the planes? <laughs> now this was a serious note. This On one retreat I did, I was a self-retreat at uh, IMS, and I was sitting up in my room, and there was some noise from the uh, pipes, you know, from the heating system. And I was just in this space where I was hearing whole conversations from the noises in the pipes, and I was completely convinced that conversations from the kitchen, which was <laughs> two and a half miles away... <laughs> was somehow traveling through the pipes, <laughs> I was completely living in the world of those conversations. It was amazing. And they were pretty intense. Friends were killing one another. And <laughs> <coughs> I had to actually go down. I mean, I was in silence. I was on retreat. I had to go down and check this out. So this is another kind of clinging <laughs> that can take place, this yogi mind phenomena. Clinging to anything as I or mine is suffering. Because when we cling in that way, when we claim something, take something to be I or mine or self, it is a limitation of awareness. It's a contraction. It's as if we create a prison of self. Whenever we cling to any arising appearance, 
in that moment of clinging, the birth of the I, the birth of the self has taken place. The self is not something, or the ego self, the I, is not something that's there that we have to get rid of. Our task is not to get rid of the self. It has never been there in the first place. The self is a condition which arises in any moment when there is clinging in the mind. The self, the sense of self is being created in particular moments when we cling, when we identify. Notice during the course of a day how we take rebirth many, many times in the different realms. Now, there's a well-known tanka uh, painting from the Tibetan tradition. It's called The Wheel of Life. And on it, it's, it's kind of a circular mandala, and it depicts the different realms of existence. You know, the, the Brahma realms and the Deva and the human realms and animal and hungry ghosts and demons and hell realms, and it just goes around. It's very interesting to notice our experience in those terms. When we get lost in a pleasant fantasy, you know, we're just lost in some fantasy of pleasure. That's like a that's like a temporary rebirth in a heavenly realm or a realm of sense pleasure. When we get caught up, you know, with some intense unfulfilled wanting or longing, when we're really caught in that. That's like rebirth in what's called the hungry ghost realm. The realm of unfulfilled desire. If we happen to be caught up or consumed by hatred for whatever particular period of time, that's rebirth in a in a hell realm. Now, if we are filled with love and compassion for that period of time, that's rebirth in a Brahma realm. The self or the I takes rebirth countless times a day. Between one step and the next, how many different mind worlds are created? Worlds that we're actually inhabiting, we're living in. There's a Pali and Sanskrit word, samsara, which refers to this endless cycle, you know, of birth and death and rebirth around and around, this circle of existence. The literal meaning of samsara is perpetual wandering. This perpetual cycle of birth and death, of being created in one of these, taking birth in one of these realms and dying from it and birth again. And we can see it moment to moment in our lives, in, in our experience right here. The Buddha and other great Teachers and beings have also described how it's not only rebirth moment to moment, this birth of self, this birth of ego, but also the rebirth in different realms, you know, after death, conditioned by our experience. When we begin to see this for ourselves, not so much what happens, you know, in the next life, which probably for most of us we don't see, but we can see it right here. We can see it in the course of one day, one hour. The mind grasping, clinging to something or other, identifying some thought, some feeling, some emotion. When we see this repeatedly and deeply, this seeing of it really can become the seed of questioning, of investigation, and finally of a very deep faith. Because as we notice what's happening in our own minds, in our lives, the question arises, where is the end of this? Is this our life, just this endless cycle 
You know, this round of rebirths, moment to moment, in the different realms, we're happy, we're sad, we're, you know, in the high realms, we're in the low realms, it doesn't matter because they're all continually changing. And so when we see this happening, see the endlessness of it, it really can spark a feeling of inquiry or investigation. Well, is there an end to this? Can we actually come to a place of peace? Can we come to a place of rest? Stop creating this sense of self, of I, of separation. The Buddha spoke of three gateways or three doors to liberation. You know, we see the problem. The Buddha's enlightenment, his awakening, shows us the possibility there is a way to come out of this perpetual wandering of samsara, to free ourselves from the rebirth of self again and again. He talked about these three gateways to freedom, gateways to liberation. The first of them is the deepening insight into impermanence. And we can look at our worlds, ourselves, and see impermanence on every level. You know, if we take the biggest field, we can think of, I don't know, clusters of galaxies, you know, something huge. Or we take it down to the smallest level, you know, of subatomic quarks. I don't know what they are. (laughs) Whatever those subatomic, sub-sub-subatomic particles are. You know, just the tiniest things. And everything in between, there is nothing static in that whole spectrum. That wherever we look, if we look with care, we see that it's all in a process of change. You know, our bodies, our relationships, our possessions, everything. Now, what's interesting about this is that we all know this intellectually. You go out to anybody on the street and you say, do things change? (laughs) Everybody will say yes. We know it intellectually, but that is not enough. Because if we really know it, if we know it deeply and completely and fully, we would not cling to anything. But we don't know. We haven't embodied it into a real living wisdom for ourselves. And so that's the task of the practice, that we see it so clearly and so vividly in our direct experience, not as some abstraction, that we really grok it, you know, that we really are living that wisdom, that understanding. Because when we are living in that wisdom, then we see the absolute futility and inappropriateness of trying to hold on to anything, trying to grasp at anything. From the seeing of impermanence directly, the mind begins to let go, begins to let go more and more. In order to open to this experience more clearly, there's a very important shift that needs to take place in the meditation practice. And that is we need to go from the level of concepts of things to the level of direct experience. And just some very simple examples of this. We can be sitting and thinking, oh, my back hurts. My back hurts is a concept. Back is a concept. There's no sensation called back. What's 
happening in our experience is some sensation of tightness, burning, pressure, twisting, whatever it happens to be. Now, why is this shift important from concept of back to level of sensation? Because the concept doesn't change. We use that same word, back today, back tomorrow, back yesterday, back, 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 as if there's something which is a back that is unchanging. And we're living in this realm of concept and therefore think very deeply or relate to things as if they're solid, as if they're substantial, as if they don't change. And yet, as soon as we go from that level of concept back to the direct experience of the sensation, we see it's in constant change. It's just an energy an energy ch- uh, field of momentary sensations. That's what brings us deeply into the truth of impermanence. Just as, as a simple experiment right now. You know, if you move your arm and just move it very slowly and see if you can just be in the actual feeling of the sensations free of any concept of arm or image of arm. But just there's a world of sensation going on. And each of those sensations it's like a current or a current of a river, something continuously flowing, changing. That's the level we want to stay on you know, in our meditative practice because that's what's revealing in a very clear way the changing nature of things. We can do it on a little more macroscopic level as well. Just on the last retreat I did, I was I was in Barry, um, just a little way from the center, this you know, small lake or pond, and I would walk to the lake every day, and basically just watching, you know, this flow of sensation. But one day I was just reflecting, in a way, as I got to the pond, I was reflecting on the fact that. What I had experienced five minutes before in the walk was completely gone. (laughs) It was just completely gone. And then I thought, not only five minutes, four minutes, three minutes, two minutes. The moment before is completely gone. And if you really want to get a little trippy, (laughs) the present is completely gone too. We need to practice on whatever level, whether this microscopic level or you know, on a little more macroscopic level, we need to practice this clear seeing of impermanence. I don't know how to emphasize this enough, that it's, it's actually something that needs to be practiced. Because the conditioning of our clinging and grasping is so strong. And the seeing of impermanence, where we really get that things are changing, are disappearing, that's what's going to decondition that habit that we have of grasping and clinging. And we can see this habit so clearly, this tendency so clearly in our lives. Now, how much of our lives is spent kind of leaning forward or anticipating the next hit of experience? Now, maybe the next event in our lives or the next vacation or the next relationship or the next this or the next that. It's like, it's as if we're just waiting for the next thing to come in our lives. And that's how we're measuring or leading our lives, toppling forward in that way. And we do it right here. You know, how often do we sit 
the next breath, the next step, the next sitting, the next meal. And yet when we settle back and really look at the nature of it all, we see that it's all just empty phenomena rolling on. It's interesting to me that when we look back on our experience, we all, I think, have the sense of its dreamlike, passing, ephemeral nature. When you think of you know, what was before the retreat or last year or five years ago. We can get a sense that, you know, where is it? And yet when we look ahead, it's as if we're continuously dazzled by the array of possibilities out there. (laughs) Why? Because they're just going to become like everything that we've already experienced. So why are we so dazzled? Why are we so fascinated? Why do we grasp so much? Because we forget. We're living in this delusion that somehow what's yet to come will be more fulfilling than what has already come. It's not. And it's not precisely because of one very basic truth that it's all changing. It's not going to last, whatever it is. You know, think just in these last few days, think of the absolute best moment you had. You know, and think of the worst moment. You know, just the most terrible one. Where are they now? And yet we get so excited, so worked up, you know, one way or another. Because we're not living in that wisdom of recognizing, of seeing the changing and permanent nature of everything. Seeing it helps us to not grasp, not cling. Now there's one very important uh, kind of subtlety here, or distinction, which I'd like to highlight. And it's reflected in two words which are similar but I feel have very uh, important and different connotations. And that is the difference between detachment and non-attachment. Because sometimes people hear all this and they're translating it in the mind, oh, well, that must mean kind of a withdrawal you know, from life, from experience. That's what not clinging means. And that's the connotation of detachment. You know, okay, well, I'll just pull back and be detached from everything. That's not what it is. It's the difference between detachment, which is a withdrawal from experience, and non-attachment, which is being one with experience, but not clinging to it. Do you see the difference between those? It's a world of difference. And sometimes they're confused. The quality of mind that's associated with this insight into impermanence is the quality of faith. Everything is changing and dissolving in every moment. And this is how it's happening. We're not creating this. Our practice is just to open, to see it. So then the challenge or the practice, given this truth of constant change and dissolution, can we relax into that? Can we surrender into it? It needs a sense of trust. In order to surrender, in order to relax into the flow of change, we need a quality of faith or trust in order to do that. And we go through different (coughs) phases of experience in this faith or trust in the flow of change. Because one word for change would be 
things being created anew every moment. And every moment something else is arising. And so when we're in that phase of understanding, just seeing, oh, this, it's quite exhilarating. When we're really seeing that on a momentary level, it's like seeing birth, moment after moment after moment. And when that happens in the meditation, there's a tremendous exhilaration. When we really get into a concentrated place of seeing the arisings of things, you know, moment after moment, there's joy, there's exuberance, there's enthusiasm, there's a kind of rapture. So that's one meaning of the word change, this continual renewal. But another meaning of the word change is also loss. Because not only are things coming into being moment after moment, things are dissolving, disappearing moment after moment. And this stage of seeing impermanence, this stage of dissolution, where we're really seeing that there is no place to take a stand, it's like wherever we try to take a stand, the rug is pulled out from under us. Seeing impermanence in that way can be very fearful because we realize there is no security anyplace. And every, every place we thought there was security, we see is an illusion, that we can't hold on to anything at all. Everything pulled away. There can be tremendous fear, tremendous anxiety at that time. And then the final phase of seeing this flow of impermanence, we go through the exhilaration, we go through the fear, we come to a place of ease, of equanimity, where we see both the arising and passing, the mind is even, is calm. And there's a wonderful image which describes this whole process. Now imagine you or someone you know (coughs) is in an airplane And by choice, uh, you jump out of the plane, you know, kind of free fall. And those first moments of free fall, you know, tremendously exciting and exhilarating. It's it's a real adrenaline rush of excitement. And then at a certain point, as you're falling, 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 you realize you don't have a parachute. (laughs) That's when the fear strikes. You know, uh-oh, there's no security anyplace. I don't have this parachute uh, for safety. Falling, 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 full of fear, full of terror. But then at another point further down, you realize there's no ground. <laughs> <laughs> then there's no problem. <laughs> and that's really, in one way, the progression of the meditation. As we refine our awareness of impermanence, we go through these different phases. Ajahn Chah, who was this great Thai master, he expressed the fruit of seeing this impermanence very simply. He said, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom in this world. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. It's all about letting go of clinging, not clinging to anything as I or mine. So this is the first gateway to liberation, this deepening realization, the living embodiment of realizing the impermanence, of everything, of ourselves, of the world. The second gateway to liberation is the insight into suffering or dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word. And we experience this in different ways. We can experience it as pain, painful sensations, painful emotions. This is called (laughs) dukkha-dukkha. It's kind of the the suffering of pain. There's also the suffering of the unreliability of things. And this is the suffering that comes from change, that there's nothing that's reliable. 
nothing we can count on precisely because it's all changing. And that, that's why practicing for some pleasant experience is a setup for suffering. Because if we don't get it, we're frustrated. And if we do get it, it will leave. <laughs> so I hope you're getting the point that this is not why we're practicing. <laughs> and there's a third kind of suffering, which is the suffering... I don't know, maybe the best Western expression of it is the second law of thermodynamics, <laughs> which I know very little about, except that I think it says something about entropy. <coughs> you know, that, <coughs> that basically organized systems tend to dissolve. You know, and to keep an organized system together, it takes energy, it takes effort. Well, the Buddha actually talked about that. <laughs> he, he talked about the suffering <coughs> of just that things take effort to keep together. You know, and if we don't put that energy into a system, it falls apart. How is suffering a gateway to liberation? Well, when we can open to it fully and completely, and we really feel the suffering, the awareness of it, in a very spontaneous way, conditions the letting go. It's like we're holding on to a hot burning coal. And as long as we're living in some deluded world, we may go on holding it. But as soon as we actually feel it you know, with clarity and directly, we feel a hot burning coal in our hand. Well, should I let go? Shouldn't I let go? No. <laughs> We let go because it's burning, because of the suffering. So what does this tell us? The fact that we often don't let go. It tells us that we're not really seeing it clearly. You know, we're not really connecting with it clearly. And one way we don't is by not examining or investigating the whole environment around the state of suffering. Because we may know the pain that we're feeling, but we might not be aware of all the reactions, the judgment, the resistance to it that's there. And so very often we get caught in an identification, an unconscious identification with the resistance to the pain. We get caught in our own contraction. The more we open to the suffering and see it directly, relax into it, allow ourselves, surrender to it, <coughs> that insight deconditions the grasping.
the letting go happens by itself. The quality of mind associated with this insight into suffering is concentration. Just like it's faith associated with impermanence, concentration is associated with suffering. Why? Because it takes concentration to hold the mind steady enough to allow us to feel the suffering. You know, because our tendency is so much to move away from it because it's unpleasant. We need to develop that steadiness, that stillness. Okay, can I be here with this pain? Can I allow myself to feel it? We need the strength to be able to do it. And that strength comes from a concentrated mind. So the first gateway to liberation is insight into impermanence. The second gateway is insight into suffering. And the third gateway to liberation is insight into selflessness. The Pali word is anatta. And in some ways, this is the hardest aspect for us to get, you know, imper- even intellectually. Impermanence is clear. Suffering is very clear. But what does selflessness mean? You know, if there's no self, who came to this retreat? You know? And who gets angry? Who gets happy? If there's no self. Who's making effort? You know, who falls in love? Who has memories? What does it mean to say there's no self, no I? Every morning we get up, you know, we look in the mirror and, yep, that's me. <laughs> you know, and there's that familiar nod of recognition. So there's some sense of self that we carry. What are the ways in which we can really begin and then deepen our realization of selflessness, of emptiness? Because this is the great jewel of the Buddha's teachings. One way of understanding it is to see that every experience is an appearance arising out of conditions. That experiences don't have in any inherent self-existence, but it's all arising out of a coming together of conditions. There's a very simple and, and clear example of this, I think. And that is that of a rainbow. When we go outside after a rain, and sometimes there's a rainbow in the sky, we go out, and for almost all of us, there's that immediate sense of recognition and of delight. It's it's a beautiful thing. Oh, there's a rainbow. And we start, look at the rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) But what actually is a rainbow? First, have you ever asked that question? No. Is there anything which in itself is a rainbow? If we look carefully, we see that a rainbow is an appearance due to certain conditions of moisture, of light, of air. The conditions come together in the right way, and there's an appearance which we call rainbow. But there's no thing existing in itself, independent of those conditions. There's no rainbow thing that lives in this universe. (laughs) Do you see this? It's just appearance out of conditions. Well, Joseph and Sharon and Yoshin and each one of us is exactly like that rainbow. You know, there's an appearance arising out of conditions. We give it a name, Joseph or self, and then take that name, believe it to refer to some self-existing thing, just like we do with rainbow. And the purpose of our practice, our investigation, is to begin to get past that concept and to see that what we're calling Joseph, what we're calling self and each one of us, what we're calling it is an appearance arising out of different conditions. 
you know, of sensations, of thoughts, of feelings, of all the conditions that make up the experience. I like the image because I like the idea of us all being rainbows (laughs) (laughs) or rainbow-like. There's another way of understanding selflessness, emptiness of self, and that is to see that each arising appearance, whether it's a thought, a sound, a sensation, you know, all the things that are arising moment to moment, that each arising experience does not refer back to anyone. There's no one behind these experiences to whom they're happening. The experiences themselves are simply arising and passing away. There's no one behind them to whom they refer. And so in this light, we begin to see that the thoughts are the thinker. The thoughts are thinking themselves. There's no one who's having the thought. The thought is thinking itself. And with each of the emotions. Now it's anger which is angering. And love loves. And joy joys. And hatred hates. There's no self, there's no I behind these appearances or phenomena which is holding them or which owns them. What happens though is we don't see clearly in this way. And so what happens very quickly is as these different appearances arise, we quickly identify with them We take them to be who we are. We build a whole superstructure of self on top of a momentary experience. So it's not, we don't often see, oh, this is just anger doing its thing or love doing its thing. I'm angry. You know, I'm loving, I'm generous, I'm fearful. We create this sense of self through the identification and then even go further, I'm an angry person or I'm a fearful person. This is Sharon was telling some stories about me. So I'm going to tell a story about her. (laughs) It's really a story about me and her. (laughs) There was one time in my practice when there was a huge amount of fear arising. Just that's what was coming up. And there were times when it just felt like primal fear. So much fear. I was in one situation where... I was afraid to go from sitting position to standing. I mean, just that felt, I can't do that. You know, it was really intense. And then the intensity of that wore off a bit, but still lots and lots of fear was coming up. This was a period over months. (coughs) And then at some point, uh, Sharon and I were teaching in Texas. And we were just taking a walk after lunch. And I was going on and on about my fear and you know, it's so deep and I'm such a fearful person and it's going to take 99 years of therapy to unwind it. <laughs> <laughs> and she turned to me and she said, it's just a mind state. You know, and that's, those are words that I must have said a million times to other people. But just in that moment, you know, there are times when it's just the right moment to hear something. And that was, that was such a moment. It's just a mind state. That's all. It's a mind state arising out of conditions in the moment. And here I was building this whole edifice of self, of I on it. And it was so liberating right in that. It's just a mind state. It is what it is. It's empty. It's impermanent. It has its own nature. (coughs) So we really want to practice seeing this because it's so incredibly freeing. Why should we carry the skyscraper of self <laughs> you know, through our lives? I'd like to read a f- just a few Rumi poems about this. What I want is to leap out of this personality, 
and then sit apart from that leaping. I've lived too long where I can be reached. (laughs) (laughs) This is another one. No one knows who I am. No one can find me. No one can hurt me. No one can destroy me. O beloved, you have lifted me clear of me. Fate's arrows rain on an old rag doll. When we take the I, the self, out of it, a much happier place. Okay, to see the rainbow-like quality, that there's no self-existence. Everything's just arising out of conditions. That there's no one behind them to whom they refer. That everything is simply doing its thing. We can understand selflessness in the sense of things being ungovernable. Things are not subject to our will. They follow their own laws. Can we say with any efficacy, body, don't grow old. Don't get sick. Let me have only pleasant feelings. No. There's no one here in charge. Things are following their own laws. And in, it's one of the meanings of the word dharma. Dharma means laws of nature, the nature of things. But somehow we live in this illusion that there's a boss in here. But when we pay attention, we see it's not so, that everything is just happening lawfully according to its own nature. One of the simplest and most direct (coughs) expressions of this understanding of selflessness and of the practice of selflessness uh, comes from the 17th century Zen master Bankai in one very short little phrase. He said, don't side with yourself. (laughs) And when I read that, I thought... How much of the time are we siding with ourselves you know, in life? We're setting up ourselves as a reference point vis-a-vis the world and then taking our own side. <laughs> if we practice this short instruction, don't side with yourself, what happens is it begins to free us from the perspective of self-reference. So we're not always living from that sense of self-referential perspectives. We begin more and more to live in the empty, clear nature of awareness itself. Awareness is the great mystery the nature of awareness, the nature of consciousness. And here I'm using the the word synonymously, although in some contexts certain distinctions are made. But for now we can take it to be the same. This power of cognizing, the universal power of knowing, unconstructed awareness, Now, it really is a great mystery. What is it? Moment after moment, things are being known, sounds and sights and thoughts and emotions and sensations in the world. Things are being known, but known by what? What is it? Is it anything? And what's so subtle in this matter is that as soon as we identify with awareness, as soon as we cling to awareness itself, in that moment, its quality of innate wakefulness and openness and emptiness is obscured. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Not phenomena, not awareness.
This is a Tibetan teacher. It's from uh, a wonderful book called The Flight of the Garuda. Now come up close and listen. When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, to start with, mind doesn't emerge from anything. It's primordially empty. There's nothing there to hold on to. It isn't anywhere. It has no shape, no color, and in the end, nowhere to go. There's no trace of its having been. Mind itself is not created by causes and finally not destroyed by external conditions. It neither grows nor gets stuck. It's not empty or full. Ceaselessly it reveals itself as everything, so you can't say, here it is. Not being fixed as something, it's beyond presence and absence. It neither comes nor goes, gets born nor dies, illuminates nor obscures. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Stripped bare of samsaric error, mind itself is surely and always Buddha. It's a good place to stop. (laughs) Now this is really what our practice is about. Seeing clearly coming to that place, coming through these doorways of liberation, seeing impermanence and suffering and the selfless, empty clarity of the nature of awareness itself. Let's sit for a few minutes. Mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive, stripped bare of samsaric error, mind itself is surely and always Buddha.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.